Keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 22 will be our text this morning. And our title will be, The Christ of God. The Christ of God. In this text, Jesus asked his disciples two questions. And then Jesus gave them some incredible revelation about his earthly ministry. And these verses serve as an introduction to what Jesus is about to teach his disciples concerning the kingdom of God. And we'll look at that next week. But the kingdom of God rests upon this foundation, the Christ of God. And as we'll see revealed in these verses, the rejected, slain, and risen again Christ of God. Before we begin, let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for what is revealed here in your word. Lord, we understand that all true revelation comes from you. Lord, that it is you who must open our eyes to see the truth of the gospel, to see the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, to recognize him as the Christ, as the Messiah. Lord, I pray you do a work in hearts and lives this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first we'll see what the people said about Jesus. Verse 18 begins... And it came to pass, as he, Jesus, was alone praying, his disciples were with him. Now this is a unique detail in Luke's gospel account. The conversation that is recorded in this text took place privately. Only Jesus and the disciples were present. They were separated from the crowds on this occasion for prayer. There are several things we can learn from this. First, though Jesus was busy with public ministry, he still made time to be alone with his father, and with his disciples. If we are not faithful in our personal devotion and in our immediate sphere of ministry with our family and our friends, we cannot expect God to bless our other work. No one had a greater earthly work than Jesus, and yet he still took time to be alone with God the Father and with his disciples. And when Jesus was alone, he prayed. We know that God is omniscient, omnipresent, that we are never truly alone. And how often, when we are alone, do we allow our minds to wander aimlessly? Time of solitude is best spent in prayer. This is how our Lord used His private time. When we are busy with work, whether that is secular work or spiritual work, there's a great temptation to become self-reliant. How will I get all this work done? How will I make this work fruitful and productive? And very quickly, we can begin to trust in our labor instead of trusting in God. We should be faithful to use the common means that God has given us to accomplish the work He has set before us. We are to work diligently with our hands and with our minds. The Lord has given these things to us, and He expects us to use them faithfully. But we should never look to ourselves as sufficient for the tasks before us. We know ourselves. We know our weaknesses and our failings. We must constantly be reminded that all we have comes from God. And in prayer, we acknowledge Him and ask for strength and diligence to perform the work that is before us. Martin Luther said, In human affairs, we accomplish everything through prayer. What has been properly arranged, we keep in order. What has gone amiss, we change and improve. What cannot be changed and improved, we bear. Overcoming all trouble and sustaining all good by prayer. Against force, there is no help but prayer alone. 
May we follow our Lord's example as we see it in our text and be faithful in prayer. Well, in this private setting, when he was alone with his disciples, Jesus asked them, Whom say the people that I am? Now, why did Jesus ask this question? He knew the hearts of the people. Jesus understood better than the disciples what the people thought about him and about his ministry. And yet Jesus asked the disciples, Who do the people say that I am? This question wasn't for the benefit of Jesus, but for the benefit of the disciples, and by extension for our benefit. In their answer, the disciples would consider the mistakes that others made about the identity of Jesus, and in contrast, see how merciful and gracious God had been in revealing truth to them. But before we look at how the disciples answered Jesus in our text, let's pause and consider how we would answer this question. If Jesus asked you this question, how would you answer? Whom say the people that I am? Many in our day would say that Jesus is a myth. All those stories might be based upon some real person or compilation of real people. But Jesus, as a real person, never really existed. Not, not as he is portrayed in the Gospels. The Jesus of the Gospels is a myth. A great many people would consider Jesus to be a great teacher, maybe even a prophet. You cannot read what Jesus said without recognizing the wisdom and beauty with which he spoke. He was a great teacher, certainly. And many people think that's all that he was. Some people think that Jesus is a way to the Father. That he is one truth among many. There might be many paths that lead to God, and Jesus is one of those paths. If Jesus is truth for you, wonderful. He just might not be truth for me or truth for someone else. We all have our own truths, and Jesus can be truth for some people. But maybe the most bizarre answer of our time is this. Many people would say that Jesus is God, and yet they live as if they are God. It's nothing less than blasphemy, terrible blasphemy. To acknowledge Jesus as God with your lips and not with your life is to say, I know Jesus is to be worshipped and obeyed. I know He is God and He alone is worthy to be served. But I'm going to openly and defiantly rebel against Him. As 2 Peter 2.21 says, It would be better to have never known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turn away from it. The mercy of God unto salvation is not found in a bare profession from the lips that Jesus is God but rather true confession from the heart. This is the fruit of faith. And a true confession from the heart inescapably leads to a transformed life. Beware of a vain profession. Well, now let's look at how the disciples answered this question in verse 19. Luke 9, 19. And they answered, saying, John the Baptist, and some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. John the Baptist, or Elijah, or one of the old prophets. Now that list should sound familiar. This is the same list that we saw back in verses 7 and 8 of this chapter, when Herod was perplexed about the identity of Jesus. And he heard the same thing from the people. Some people said that Jesus was John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Some people said Jesus was Elijah, returned from heaven. Some people said Jesus was one of the older Old Testament prophets, raised again and returned. 
Now, what's the significance of this list? All these people were prophets. Israel at this time had been hundreds of years without a prophet. The Jews were well aware that there had been no new prophetic revelation since the days of Malachi. But now, with John the Baptist and now with Jesus, the people believed that prophets had returned to Israel. The people had received John the Baptist as a prophet. And from the testimony that we see here in Luke 9, it's clear that the people also thought Jesus was a prophet. They may not have known or agreed upon his actual identity, but they were convinced that he was indeed a prophet. I'm reminded of the words of Nicodemus when he said to Jesus in John 3, 2, Rabbi, we know thou art a teacher, come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou dost, except God be with him. And the blind man healed in John 9, who said of Jesus, He is a prophet. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. It's also interesting that the people don't think Jesus is a new prophet. Why? John the Baptist was received as a new prophet. Why not Jesus? At the very least, this demonstrates the hardness of their hearts. The people were looking back at what God had done for them in the past, and they were not looking forward in anticipation of the promises of God surrounding the Messiah. Not a Messiah like Jesus. Well, the people believed that Jesus was a prophet. They didn't agree upon which prophet he was, but they were confident that he was indeed a prophet. That's what the people thought about Jesus. Well, next we see what the disciples believed about Jesus in verses 20 and 21. Jesus continued this line of questioning with the disciples and asked them in verse 20, But whom say ye that I am? Again, Jesus knew what was in the heart of the twelve disciples. Jesus knew that 11 of the disciples would ultimately be faithful, but that Judas Iscariot would betray him. Jesus knew about their secret conversations, like when they argued about who would be greatest in the kingdom. And we'll see that as we get on here in Luke 9. Jesus knew that what they professed and what they would actually do would be different, such as when Peter said he was ready to die for Jesus. And Jesus replied, Peter... The cock shall not crow this day, before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Jesus knew it was in the heart of his disciples. Again, this question was for the benefit of the disciples, and by extension, for us. When the disciples answered this question, they could clearly see what an advantage they had over the people. Not because they were more wise, not because they were better, but because God had revealed the truth to them. If God has revealed Himself to us, may that never make us proud when we consider the darkness that others still live in. We have nothing in ourselves to glory in. We glory in God. It is by His mercy and His grace that we are anything. May this make us patient and compassionate toward others who are still dwelling in darkness. Now again, before we look at the answer that the disciples gave to Jesus, let's think about how we would answer this question. How would you answer if Jesus said to you, Whom say ye that I am? Now, truth doesn't change, no matter what you say about Jesus. Jesus is Lord. One day, every tongue will confess that truth to the glory of God the Father, as we're told in Philippians 2.11. On the day of judgment, the damned will confess this truth to the glory of God's perfect justice. 
And the redeemed will confess this truth through the glory of God's incredible mercy and grace. What you believe now does not change what is true. You can believe what you want about Jesus. That doesn't change that He is God. But this question is one of the most important questions for you as an individual to answer. Who is Jesus? Do you answer like the world? No, he's, he's a myth. Or a great teacher. Maybe even a prophet. Maybe He is one of many ways to the Father. Or worst of all, He's God. But I won't obey Him. I won't worship Him. I won't submit myself to Him. The end of answers like this is damnation. If you're wrong about Jesus, you're ultimately wrong about everything else. You can build a beautiful house, but if it has no foundation, it will fall apart. You can build a beautiful life, successful, moral, upright, respectable. But if it's not built upon the biblical revelation of Jesus Christ, it is as worthless as a house without a foundation. Such a life is worth nothing on the day of judgment. Don't make a false god out of your morality. Who is Jesus? Most of you, I trust, are disciples of Jesus Christ. How would you answer that question? Who is Jesus? This question can be answered with, with wonderful depth from the Word of God. I, I love the statement that's found in our 1689 Baptist Confession. Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with Him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything He has made. When the fullness of time came, He took upon Himself human nature, with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus He was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David, in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. Amen. There's a lot of wonderful truth given in that statement, drawn directly from the Word of God. What depth we can answer this question with. This question can also be answered with childlike simplicity. Who is Jesus? Jesus is my Savior. There may be much you don't know about Jesus, but if you know this, you have the right beginning. Rejoice in such simple faith and then be faithful to grow in your understanding of what God has revealed in His Word. Well, verse 20 goes on to record a brief but profound response from Peter. On behalf of the disciples, Jesus asked, Whom say ye that I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. Notice how this answer is different from the speculation of the people. There is assurance and conviction in this answer. This is a real answer. Peter knew who Jesus was. The disciples believed that Jesus was distinct in his ministry. They did not believe that he was some other prophet come back from the dead but that he had a separate and unique ministry. And not the ministry of a prophet, although that was an exalted ministry. 
The disciples believed that Jesus was the Christ. The Christ. The Christ is not a name. Sometimes the word Christ is used like a title. And sometimes it's used to describe a person's position. Now in the Greek, it is a translation for the Hebrew word anointed. The Hebrew word anointed is also where we get our word Messiah. The first time that we find this Hebrew word in the Old Testament, it's in Leviticus chapters 4 and 6, where it's in reference to anointed priests, priests who have been anointed for ministry in the tabernacle. This word isn't used again in the Old Testament until we get to 1 Samuel. And then 1 Samuel and following, it's used to describe sometimes the kings of Israel who were anointed to that office, and sometimes it's used to describe prophets in Israel who are anointed to serve God before the people. So the way this word is used in the Old Testament. Again, in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings are all referred to as anointed, or small m, messiahs. Same word. And this gives us further insight into the person and work of Jesus. He came to do what could not be done by the people of God, nor by their anointed representatives, the prophets, the priests, and the kings. Jesus came to fulfill the law of God. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power to be the true Messiah, the Christ. Acts 10.38 He is the true prophet. In response to His miracles, the people rightly said of Jesus in John 6.14, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into this world. Of course, in reference to the prophecy given by Moses, that a greater prophet than he would come. He is the true prophet, and he is the true high priest. The book of Hebrews demonstrates this at great length. He is the true king. Jesus left no question about his kingship when questioned by Pilate in John 18. I have a kingdom that is not of this world. So we see that Christ is not merely a name, but it is a significant title and description of the promised Redeemer, the Messiah, who would come. I would remind you again, That Judas Iscariot was present when Peter said this on behalf of the disciples. And he voiced no disagreement. I wonder if you had specifically asked Judas Iscariot this same question. If you would have given a different answer. I, I, I personally don't think he would have. I believe that if you had asked Judas Iscariot on this occasion, he would have also said that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. Take warning from this. You can believe great things about Jesus and still not belong to Him. You can confess great truth, but if it is not joined with true faith, then it's an empty profession. You can say Jesus is God, but then live as if you are God, the final arbitrator of right and wrong. Our hearts are deceitful. We are just as likely to deceive ourselves as we are to deceive others. Beware of a vain profession. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To confess great truth apart from faith serves only to demonstrate our guilt and brings us under just condemnation. By the grace of God, may the truth we confess be joined with true faith in our hearts. Well, after this profound confession from Peter, on behalf of the disciples, verse 21 tells us that Jesus straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing. Now, we've seen this earlier in the book of Luke. Back in Luke 4.34, a demon-possessed man, under the influence of the demon, 
said to Jesus, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Now on that occasion, Jesus rebuked the demon and silenced him. He would not allow the demon to testify about his identity as the Messiah. And when we studied that passage, we noted several reasons for this. First, Jesus had no common cause with demons. He had no need for the testimony. Third, the demon had no interest in submission, obedience, or association with Jesus. And finally, though the demon had great knowledge about Jesus, he would not use that knowledge to the glory of God. And so Jesus silenced the demon. And now again we see Jesus silenced those who knew his identity as the Messiah. But this situation is very different. These are disciples, not demons. These are men Jesus chose and was training to declare the gospel. These are men who, as we've seen earlier in this passage, in this chapter, they were sent out to preach the kingdom of God. And so why did Jesus so strictly command them not to declare at this time that he was the Christ? Well, his time had not yet come. His work of redemption had not yet been accomplished. And Jesus goes on in this text to speak about these things. As we continue on to the gospel accounts and get into the book of Acts, we see that when the time came, the disciples would boldly declare Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah. In Acts 2.38, excuse me, 2.36, Peter concluded his Pentecost sermon with these words, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, in the time in which we live, Christ must be declared to the nations. The Great Commission were to go out and declare Christ to the nations. But when Jesus spoke to the disciples in our text, it was not yet time. And that's why he commanded them on this occasion not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. His time had not yet come. But what does that mean? What does it mean that his time had not yet come? Jesus elaborated in verse 22. In verse 22, Jesus revealed further details about his ministry to his disciples. Verse 22 begins with these words from Jesus. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Now, Jesus used this title for himself, the Son of Man, more than any other title. This title is prophetic. It's a title for the Messiah. In Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, the Word of God says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Again, a reference to the Son of Man. Just as Adam was representative of the human race at the first creation, so Jesus, the Son of Man, is representative of the human race in the new creation. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. The first Adam failed in his role. He transgressed the command of God. And through his headship, we we are all born into a sin nature. We're sinners by nature as well as sinners by choice. And don't get mad at Adam. Adam was created perfect. 
He was in a perfect environment. He was humanity's best shot at keeping the law of God. Where Adam failed, you and I would also fail. In our Wednesday night family group, we're going through the New City Catechism. And the question this past week was, what does the law of God require? And the full answer is personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done. And what God commands should always be done. There's no hope in the law. There's no comfort in the law. There's no good news in the law. The law demands personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Had Adam never sinned, his righteousness would still not be secure because his righteousness rested upon his obedience, his personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. And every single day, there would be the same question, is today the day that Adam fails? Not so with the last Adam. Not so with Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law. He completed the work of redemption. And as we enter into the new creation, when we're born again by the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus Christ is our new head. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ is secure. It is a finished work. He cannot fail. There is no question. We can have blessed assurance in our salvation, not based on anything that we have done, not based on what we have accomplished, not based on our keeping the law of God, but based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, based on the identity of our Savior, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must suffer. Not may suffer, not might suffer, not even will suffer, but he must suffer. Why? Why did Jesus have to suffer? Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. He had to suffer and die to accomplish the salvation that God the Father had ordained. Beware of anyone who tells you otherwise. Beware of false teachers who try to soften the blow of Christ's death upon the cross and, and call it something else. Some false teachers say that Christ's death on the cross is, is just an example of injustice. That Jesus was just an innocent man put to death by wicked men. And in a certain sense, that's true. He was innocent, and he was put to death by wicked men. But that's not the whole story. While Christ's suffering was indeed human injustice, it was also divine justice. The early Christians recognized this. They prayed in Acts 4, 26-28, Again, they're, they're praying to the Lord, and they say, The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For of a truth, thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Christ's death on the cross was God's appointed way to accomplish salvation. Beware also of false teachers who decry the sufferings of Jesus Christ as divine child abuse. That's blasphemous. First, if you abuse someone, you are mistreating them to a bad end. Bad intentions and bad actions. Christ's suffering was for the most noble events, 
for the glory of the triune God, to the redemption of sinners. And second, Jesus willingly suffered. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus suffered. And now he sits triumphantly at the right hand of the throne of God. From Christ's suffering, may we learn to suffer. Again, beware of false teachers who would tell you that it's never God's will for you to suffer. Are we better than our Lord? In the very next verse, in Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's suffering involved there. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. The way of Christ is often the way of suffering. Scripture does not tell us how to avoid unjust suffering. Scripture instead tells us how to follow the example of our Lord and honor God in the midst of unjust suffering. That's the major theme of the book of 1 Peter, to honor God in the midst of unjust suffering. May we follow the example of our Lord and patiently endure unjust suffering for the glory of God. Now, in the rest of verse 22, Jesus revealed the details about this suffering that he would endure. First, that he would be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. These were the men who made up the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. And they would reject Jesus, the Messiah. Those who should have been at the front of the crowds to welcome him. Those who should have been crying out, Messiah. They would instead stand at the front of the crowds that cried out, Crucify him. When given the option to release Jesus or a murderer, they chose the murderer. This rejection was no surprise to Jesus. Here, at the far north end of the Sea of Galilee, far removed from the city of Jerusalem, when the people still came out in crowds by the thousands to hear Jesus teach and to see the miracles that he performed at the height of his earthly ministry, at the height of his popularity, Jesus knew he would ultimately be rejected. It was no surprise to Jesus. And it should have been no surprise to the disciples. Jesus warned them that this would happen. Next, Jesus told his disciples that he would be killed. Jesus understood his role as the Messiah. Jesus knew that he would be put to death. And he told others. He told his disciples. He alluded to his death when he was speaking in public. And we'll see this more and more in Luke's Gospel as we get closer and closer to the cross. But when Jesus spoke of his death, he also spoke of his resurrection. At the end of verse 22, Jesus said that he would be raised the third day. Lest the disciples should despair, Jesus tells them this wonderful truth, that he would be raised from the dead on the third day. Christ's resurrection was the seal upon his life, his work of redemption, and the gospel he preached. And to tie verse 22 in with verse 21 in our text, when this sign was set as a seal upon Jesus, then it would be time to declare him as Christ. That's exactly what Peter did in his sermon at Pentecost. There in Acts 2, Peter pointed to the resurrection as proof that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ. And he called upon the people to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. 
Well, how did the disciples receive this teaching from Jesus? Our text doesn't tell us. But we know from parallel accounts that they did not receive it well. The glory of the resurrection was lost to them. And they could not tolerate the thought that Jesus would suffer. That He would be rejected and ultimately put to death. From Matthew 16.22, we learn that Peter actually took Jesus aside after he had taught this to the disciples. And Peter began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. To which Jesus replied, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. That's Matthew 16.23. It would not be until after the resurrection that the disciples finally understood the work of Jesus Christ as Messiah. But what are we to learn from our text this morning? We've seen what the people said about Jesus. They thought He was a prophet. Maybe John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the other old prophets. We've learned what the disciples said about Jesus. They believed He was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we've learned what Jesus said about Himself. That He must suffer. That He must be rejected and killed. But that He'd be raised again the third day. As we close, I want you to consider how you would answer this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Do you answer this question like the people who say, He's a prophet. Maybe, maybe He's a great teacher. Maybe He's just a myth. Maybe He's God. But I won't serve Him. Or do you echo the confession of Peter? Jesus is the Christ of God, the Messiah, my Messiah. Our text doesn't record this, but in Matthew's parallel account, in Matthew 16, Jesus replied to Peter's confession with these words, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee. Flesh and blood has not revealed unto you that I am the Christ, but my Father which is in heaven. It is God the Father who reveals Jesus Christ to us. If you're here this morning, Christ has been revealed to you. It's the work of God the Father. Do not squander the revelation of God. If you're here this morning as a believer, and you're rejoicing in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as your Messiah, rejoice that God has given this revelation to you. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we're humbled before Your Word this morning. Lord, we see here that this was Your plan. It's no surprise what happened to Jesus. Lord, You knew. And You'd be glorified in this plan of redemption. Lord, we thank You that we see Peter's wonderful confession in these verses that Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Redeemer. Lord, I thank You for all those who are gathered here this morning who rejoice in this wonderful truth that You are the Messiah, the Redeemer, the One who can save us from our sins. We thank You, Lord, that the Father has revealed this to us. Lord, may we be faithful as You use us as instruments to go out and share this truth with others. 
that you indeed are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.